Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Finding Peace in an Anxious World is a series that we think is timely because we live in a world that no doubt is anxious. Uh, at the heart of this series is our desire to meet head on the felt needs in our society when it comes to the idea of things like anxiousness, worry, and stress, these things that oftentimes rob us of this gift of peace we have from Jesus. This gift I'm re- referring to is found in John 14, 27. When Jesus said these words to his anxious disciples, he said, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift that the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. These powerful words said to his disciples, but recorded for us, are at their base, the foundation we have to build a perspective that supersedes our crazy times. Now, unfortunately, sometimes what happens is that our felt needs and whatever the current disruption is begins to reorder and rearrange our lives. And this promise of peace from Jesus is exchanged for a lie from the enemy of our souls. When talking about peace, the Bible uses two words primarily. In the Old Testament, it's a word that many of you probably know have heard. It's this word shalom. You've heard this word before, I'm sure. But in the New Testament, and in our passage, John 14, 27 here, uh, in the original Greek, it uses the word irene, shalom and irene. When you hold these words up beside each other, they carry the same definition. And, and their definition gives us synonyms of understanding like security, safety, harmony, tranquility, prosperity. They speak to an exemption from the chaos of the world, not necessarily in a physical way, but in a heart and mind way. That despite the chaos and despite the despairing times that you may find yourself in as a believer, the peace that Jesus gives almost lifts you out of the circumstance and sets you calmly into his hands. So each week our goal is simple. We just simply want to point you back each week as we go through different topics, point you back to this gift of peace from Jesus. We want you leaving out of this room over the next few weeks, every Sunday, certain that this peace from Jesus is yours. Today, we want to talk specifically about the topic of hope over despair. 
hope over despair. For the Christian, hope is the confidence of God's word and the expectation of his promises through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That means we live not blindly wishing, but confidently expecting that the goodness of God can be found in all situations. Despair, on the other hand, is the enemy of hope. Despair clings to the unknown and the uncomfortable. It clings to the uncontrollable and tries to build a case against God and his character. It tries to build a case against your faith. Oftentimes with circumstantial truth that ignores the everlasting truth. Despair tries to change the timeline to say that the right here and right now is all that matters when the believer knows the yet to come is the ultimate hope. So ultimately, hope and despair are fueled, yes, by our emotions. Yes, they are fueled by our situations and they can become a state of mind. But at their core, they both are a participation. Hope and, and despair give us both an invitation. In seasons that are surrounded by things that can bring despair, we are still left with a decision and a choice. And in those moments, we're tasked with asking two simple questions. How will I respond and where will I set my eyes? In this moment of hardship in my life, God, how would you have me to respond? God, when my, my boat has been rocked and my life feels like it's in shambles, am I going to set my eyes on the situation or the God that transcends every situation? That is our choice. If you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me over in the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And as you turn there, scroll there, I just want to give you my thesis statement this morning. Here it is. Hope in the Christian life is centered on a commitment to a Christian mind. Hope in the Christian life is centered on a commitment to a Christian mind. Now, when studying 1 Peter as a whole, his primary aim was to encourage and instruct believers on living out their new identities in Christ despite their many challenges. Peter was writing to a church primarily of Gentiles, encouraging them not to turn back. He was encouraging them, despite how misunderstood you feel at times, despite how confusing and difficult walking with God can be at times, he's encouraging them to remember the gospel and to pursue godly lives even when the culture feels enticing, convincing, and easy. Particularly in chapter 1, Peter uses the first 12 verses to establish back into these readers and these hearers of that time the hope of the gospel. That you were once lost and spiritually dead, but God, in his great mercy, through the resurrection of Jesus, gave you new life today and new life to come. This new life and this inheritance 
doesn't fade away. It can't be taken away. And it's better than anything you could ever imagine, despite how hard it is to believe that sometimes. Essentially, he's saying to them, let the promise of your faith being realized in the future be your hope for today. In a sense, Peter is calling these believers to live with, in, through, and on the promise we have in Christ Jesus. He's teaching them and us today that hope over despair is more than a feeling and more than something we pray for, but it's something we participate in. It's a commitment. It's a journey we go on. It's setting our eyes on what our faith promises. With that said, I want to read our passage today. Our focus text is going to be 1 Peter 1.13, but I want to read us there in context. I want us to get the whole picture here, so I'm going to read us from verse 1 to verse 13. So if you can and you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand so we can read. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, so if you have it on your app and you want to follow along on your, on your phone, maybe that helps your eyes better, uh, you can follow along there, but it will be on the screens. Here's, here's what it says. I love the caption that my Bible gives. It says, a, a living hope and a sure salvation. But it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. And these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. 
Here's your key verse. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Bless the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So picking up in verse 13, the apostle Peter gives us some really good advice. The, the first piece of advice Peter gives us to having hope in despairing times is to have a ready mind. I mean, you say ready mind. We see this in our passage when the Apostle Peter says, prepare your minds for action. Another translation says to have a mind that is alert or a mind that is ready. When we look at this in its original meaning and its original intent, uh, the, the, the language here is actually saying, gird up the loins of your mind. It's borrowing from this image of a robed man who would take his robe and tuck it into his belt line. And he would do this to have a freedom of movement to be able to give a proper defense. Maybe some of you have done this before. Maybe you've seen it take place before, maybe in real life or maybe on a movie. I know I had to do this the first time I got into my first fist fight. All right. I knew I was going to get in trouble for the fight, but I didn't want to get in trouble also for messing up my school shirt because I knew he was going to grab me. So I had to take my school shirt off first to get ready. I had to gird up myself. I had to, let's go. I've seen girls get to fight and they said, let me take off my earrings. <laughs> I ain't going to win no fight in these heels, so let me go ahead and take these heels off. Now I'm ready. Like, in the same way, that's, that's the imagery that, that we need to take to this passage. This, this is our encouragement what, what Peter is saying is, hey, where there is a sure threat in your life, you better have a sure plan. So he says, pull your thoughts together. Have a mind that is, that is ready for battle. Prepare for the fight. It's a call to be certain about your course of action, to be clear about what you believe and what you hope for because where you lack clarity, where you lack awareness, where you lack strategy is where you are most vulnerable. If you live in oblivion to the fact that there is a cosmic battle happening to steal your hope and to destroy your faith, then you're only going to see the scenario in the moment as the scenario in the moment and not a battle that Jesus has already won and one that you're just called to walk through. Later in this letter, Peter wants to illuminate the imagination of their minds. And he, and he says this, this is a very familiar passage. He says, the enemy is prowling around like a roaring lion doing what? Seeking whomever he might devour. And in that same section of the letter, Peter uses a similar instruction. He says, be alert. Again, I think Peter, the man who understood mental anguish so much that on the same night he cut a dude's ear off of Jesus and then denied Jesus, understands that, that, that the, the war and the wrestling that happens in our mind and our thinking is the passageway 
to our actions and our faithfulness. What you allow to manifest in your mind will ultimately manifest into your life. This is why we have the instruction to take every thought captive. In 2 Corinthians 8.11, the Apostle Paul speaks to this as well. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Two of the most important apostles to our faith made it very clear that the war in your mind is important to your hope. The enemy wants to bring despairing moments into your life to lead you away from the simplicity and purity of your devotion to Jesus. Your devotion to Jesus is not just doing the right thing, but it's believing the right things too. So he wants to bring chaos into your mind so that you begin to doubt the goodness of God and the promises of God and then begin to set your eyes on something else and convinces you that this is now the solution. This is how you find people who have walked faithfully with Jesus for 20 years and then all of a sudden they, they are people who are now denying the faith as a part of their whole mission. This is how you've lived your life never having an alcohol problem, but all of a sudden you get laid off and now whiskey that everybody talks about sounds like a good option. This is how we find ourselves looking for a cheap escape in moments of deep despair. The enemy convinces us that the simplicity and the purity of just devotion to Jesus is not good enough. There's an old saying that we say it a lot in sports and maybe where I grew up, I've heard it said in music and different things, but it says, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. So the question we got to ask ourselves is this, are we ready? Is Northeast Christian Church a people ready? 2024 is a new year around the corner. It's going to bring new opportunities. It's going to bring new obstacles too. Are we ready? The culture is rapidly changing every day. And the price of acceptance is growing more and more and more. Are we ready? It's been a fulfilling season of singleness or an easy season of marriage, but guess what? Life is going life. Are we ready? Have we taken the time to, to survey the land, to examine our hearts, our minds, and our souls? Have we considered what the cost might be to be undoubtedly committed to our hope in Jesus moving forward? Are we asking ourselves those questions? Peter would say, ready your minds because despair finds a foothold where our lives have no preparation. Like, if you sign up for a 5K or a 10K 
and never practice running uphill, I'm just going to tell you, <laughs> you're not prepared to run the 5K. I remember my first half marathon. Literally, the first three miles was straight uphill. I'm like, this is the dumbest thing ever. I paid for this. <laughs> I've been practicing running downhill. Oh, yeah, you know. The worst decision of my life. So I wasn't prepared. But life has a lot of hills and valleys and mountaintops. Has a lot of dark places that it will take you. Are you exercising your faith? Are you prepared to stand on your hope when the goodness of this world wants to intoxicate you and when the darkness of this world wants to tell you that your hope is a lie? Peter says, ready your mind. What's our application? A prepared mind makes for a resilient faith. A prepared mind makes for a resilient faith. The second way we live with hope over despair is to keep a sober spirit. If the first point was about getting your mind ready, this point is about protecting it. To have a sober spirit is to have a calm, steady, and self-controlled posture when it comes to our lives and the decisions that we make. It's, it's resisting the drink of this world and the weakness of our flesh in those hard moments. You know, I've had the privilege, and many, everybody here has had this privilege, and some of you have had many more. But forever for the rest of my life, I'm going to remember two moments. These were two moments where I got to see the fragility of the human mind, the picture of the human heart, and just how important it is to be anchored in something bigger than this world. But the first moment was Y2K. Woo-wee! That was the scariest night of my life. I'm not even going to lie. It was the scariest night of my life because it was the scariest month of my life because people were acting a fool. Man, all the dead people going to come alive. It's going to be like Thriller. Uh, the internet's going to crash. All the water just going to dry up in the city. They burning houses down. They, I mean, they had all this stuff going on. You know what everybody was doing? Buying water and bread. It's like the world is going to end at midnight, but we sure got a lot of water and bread. <laughs> what? Then we all just went through this in 2020. Toilet paper gate. <laughs> I didn't know so many of y'all had Costco memberships. I'm talking about, I'm like, this ain't even your Costco. You, I ain't never, you, you, you usually go to the other Costco. Up in here getting all the toilet paper. I mean, so much so that poor Costco, man, they had to go back there and like block people. People are knocking over cars, they're running. We get back there, they don't even got toilet paper, they got paper towels. And people say, oh well, they're taking paper towels. To the point that the city is like, stop flushing paper towels. MSD can't fix this. And it's just a picture of what happens when we're living in this chaotic world where the, the, the fear of looming despair begins to take over our reasonable thinking. 
It shows us the savage that lives inside of us if, if we're not discipling that flesh. It's like, man, God has been good. If he can't provide me a solution for not having toilet paper, then, then what am I believing? Like, I'll be good. So remember, in the first 12 verses that we read, Peter established for these believers what their new hope is. Because when you come to faith, you still have a hope that you're used to having. Like, you still grow up in the culture that you grow up in. You still come from the family that you come from. You still live in a society that is, that is built on a dream of what life is. So as Americans, we live in a society built on this American dream and this, this, this ideal to accumulate as much wealth as you can and to have the nicest houses and cars you can and to live with the least amount of trouble in your life as you can. And so that is something that is deeply rooted in our psyche and is deeply rooted in the society that we live in. And in this same time, these uh, Gentile believers had their culture. But they had come to faith. And so what Peter was trying to get deeper to their souls is, is that you have to unhitch yourself from your old dreams and hitch the dreams of Jesus to your life. And so he establishes in them the basis and the foundation for their worldview. He says, this is the thing that matters above anything else. If everything else in your life goes wrong, you need to be centered on the gospel. And so our sobriety as believers, the way that we keep a sober mind is to remember our hope in the gospel. David Mathis, he's a fellow pastor. He's an editor for uh, DesiringGod.com. He wrote an article years ago about keeping a level head. And he had this line in here that stuck with me. He said that the most sober thinkers in the world are those who have drunk most deeply of the gospel. The most sober thinkers in the world are those who have drunk most deeply of the gospel. In other words, we keep a clean spirit when we cling to the promise and remember that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So acceptance from a broken world has nothing in comparison to acceptance from a perfect God. Our spirit stays clean when we resist the call of this world to be good soldiers and, and to build the utopia they imagine because we know that a better and more perfect society and a better and more perfect world is to come in Christ Jesus. We do well to keep clean when we remember that though a hope deferred and delayed, it might make the heart sick. A desire fulfilled is a tree of life and we serve God who is the best promise keeper ever. So he will keep his word. Our passage says, keep a sober spirit. So in order to keep something, you got to establish it. I believe you establish that sober spirit by, by having a right view of God. Seeing God both with, with, with fear and love. It's a call to right doctrine. One of both grace and truth. It's a call to clearly understand the scriptures. Both with obedience and without compromise. It's accepting the true gospel. Not a cultural faith, not my mama's faith, not Christian principles. 
but the reality that without God's grace saving and sustaining me, my life is one fit for death, hell, and the grave. It's living with this crystal clear clarity that I am a meaningless nothing without the grace, the love, and the fingerprint of God on my life. It's settling down into posture that if it doesn't further the kingdom, if it doesn't make much of God, if it doesn't build my life around God, if it doesn't uphold my heart, my mind and my integrity towards God, then having it won't be my hope and losing it won't take my hope. Just remember that God has already been too good that he's already been too loving, that he's already been too faithful. So even in the face of what should be despair, I know that surely goodness and mercy is following me all the days of my life. It's, it's setting your hope in your mind, not in the weight and the disruption of the situation, but it's setting your heart and your mind in the character of the greatest covenant keeper of all time. Just remember that God is who he said he is. And so your situation is not what it says it is. It is not your devastation. It is not the end of your rope. It is not this thing that's going to take you out. What that moment is, is a but God moment, just like the miracle it was when you were saved. It was a but God moment then, and every day in your life is a but God moment. My life is going crazy, but God. My kids have lost their everlasting mind, but, but God. I probably got to sell the house or sell a car, but God, surely goodness and mercy is following this moment too. The problem is we try to define what goodness is. God gives the definitions. So when we begin to relinquish control and begin to rest in the reality of who God is, man, hope over despair becomes an easier commitment. It becomes an easier journey because we realize we're not in control anyway. The third way we live with hope over despair is simple. It's hoping only in Christ Jesus. When we look at our verse, that's the linchpin of the whole thought. That we ready our minds and keep a sober spirit so that we might be able to set our hopes completely on the right who and the right yet to come. As simple as that statement is, this is probably one of the most difficult parts of the Christian life, especially in a place of such riches and comfort like America for most of us. There are so many things that compete for our hope, our marital status, the success of our kids, the longevity of our careers, the profitability of our investments. For some of us in this room, uh, the preparations for the perfect Christmas is keeping you up at night. It got to be just right. 
Now, side note, ain't nothing wrong with praying that the mac and cheese is right, all right? <laughs> Can't be messing up the mac and cheese, all right? So I'm praying right now. But praying for the mac and cheese and setting your hope that if Christmas is not right this year, then all is lost are two different things. There's some people in this room that's like, man, 2023 has sucked. And so we got about 40-something days, 50-something days until 2024. I'll try again then. I hate to tell you, 2023 and 2024 are just a day's difference. If you don't change what you're hoping in, the same thing is going to be there on the other side. I love being the bearer of bad news about this. Everything I named is not worth your hope. They may sound weird. They're worth your love. They're worth your caring about. They're worth your effort. But none of it is worth your hope. Your marital status will disappoint you. You get married, you're like happily ever after. And marriage is like, work forevermore. <laughs> Welcome to the factory. <laughs> it's like, you got some work to do. Your kids, you pray over your kids, you minister to your kids, you teach them all the things, you get them here, you send them to every camp. But you know what? Your kids are still at risk like every other kid that when you send them off to the UK or someplace, one week with that professor or one week with that new friend will convince them that God is not who he said he is. It's going to break your heart. But it happens all the time. You give all the extra hours to your career versus your family. And then before you know it, you're, you're sending your kids off and you're in year 20 of your career and they say, we got to make cuts. And so you're now the one cut. All of a sudden, you realize all those, that ten, extra 10 hours I gave to this office could have been the extra 10 hours I gave to my family. It's going to disappoint you. Your investments, they might be producing a 7 or 8% return right now, but who's to say that the dollar doesn't crash tomorrow? Could happen. I'll never forget studying the World Wars in uh, sixth grade, and there was this picture. It's, been, it's one of those core memories I have. From, from my education in middle school. I don't remember much about middle school education. But I remember this picture. And it was a picture of Germans, of Mr. War, standing around a barrel, holding their hands over a fire. And what was igniting that fire was money. Because over the, over the, over the few years that the war had raged, their money lost all its value. Its most valuable uh, purpose was to be used for fire to keep everybody warm. And that just etched into my mind and my heart that, man, the commas and zeros can simply be zeros tomorrow. <laughs> and some of us went through that over the last couple of years. You know that now. Peter says, set your hope on the guarantee that the grave was empty, that Jesus got up, and that he's coming back for you. There's a beautiful theological truth tucked away in this line that I don't want us to miss. 
Peter wants to settle in their hearts and ours as we study this passage today is that no matter what you might have to endure in this life, no matter what's in front of you, no matter how, how loud it yells that there is no hope, your hope is always alive because Jesus is alive. And the grace that saved you and the one that sustains you has more to come. So keep it in sight. Keep hoping. Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's our hope. And I pray that Northeast Christian Church, that we're a body of believers that are eagerly waiting for him. Sure, there's a lot of beautiful prospects that we can see play out in this world, but there's nothing more beautiful than seeing our king coming back to meet us and to establish his kingdom one final time. There's nothing more beautiful than that. So set your hopes there. I love what Dr. Karen Job says. She's a PhD and scholar. And in her commentary on 1 Peter, she wrote this about hope setting. And I love this quote. She says, one sets their hope on future grace, not by idle wishfulness or unfounded optimism, but by a mental resolve to live in such a way as to manifest the living hope of the Christian believer. The Christian hope is a reality to be recognized and acted upon. Hope you caught that. It's something to know you have and something to commit to. Going back to the beginning of this message, hope and despair offers us opportunities. They invite us to participate with them. Are we choosing to participate with the despair or are we choosing to participate with our hope? That quote from her helps us understand that hope setting is to wait with eagerness and to go through with expectation. God, I know you're coming, but in the meantime, I'm going to go through this understanding that you're still good. It's to have anticipation. It's living life with the certainty on the coming of Christ as our ultimate hope and the presence of Christ as our present hope. It's fighting tooth and nail to remember that even in the hardest moments that despair tries to win, Christ has won. So when the world is at war, we remember that the government rests on his shoulders. And when my counseling session just didn't work this time, I remember who the wonderful counselor is. When my situation seems bigger than I can handle, I remember that I serve a mighty God and the everlasting Father who carries the name Prince of Peace. So I don't know where you find yourself this morning, but I want to give you two truths. If you find yourself in despair, Matter of fact, I want to give you two truths to ready your mind for the moments that will try to bring despair. 
Number one, if you know him, peace is your gift. It's your promise. It's yours. It's wrapped for you in all the grace and love that God could ever offer. Would you just open it? Sometimes it looks like the ugly sweater you got that you don't want to wear, but put it on. It'll keep you warm on the cold nights. And it'll remind you of the effort it took to love you the way that he loves you. And if you don't know him, can I tell you something? Peace is your opportunity. See, he was the prince of peace before he came. That was a a prophesied word about Jesus. That word was prophesied about Jesus because he was coming to save a particular people. And if you were to place your hope in him, you become a part of that particular people. And so despair may be your story today, but hope can be your story before you leave here. You have a choice today. What will you participate in? Can I invite you to participate in the hope and love that flows from the everlasting fountain of Jesus Christ? As I wrap up, I just want to give us a simple homework assignment. I want to give us a leg up on preparing our minds for action and keeping a sober spirit and only setting our hope on Jesus. It's a simple instruction. You've heard a homework assignment like this before. We just want to give it to you again. But here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to take some time to examine your life. Examine your rhythms, your habits, your affections, your goals, your influence, all the things. And I just want you to ask bravely, led by the Spirit, two simple questions. Is this helping my hope or hurting my hope? When you sit at home this evening and you turn on whatever news station you prefer, give it five minutes and then ask yourself, God, is this helping my hope or is this hurting my hope? Is this setting my eyes on some conspiracy theory that sounds true? Or is this setting my hope on the God who has written the story? I want you to examine those you follow on social media. Some of these people, they talk very slick on social media. They talk very slick on their podcast. They, they know how to put words together. And that can become intoxicating. But ask yourself, um, um, does this help me have a growing affection for Jesus Christ? Or does this call me to have a preservation of my own life? When you listen to your music, when you read your books, when you watch your movies, I don't care that everybody is watching them and it has rave reviews by Rotten Tomatoes. As you sit in the movie theater, as you watch the movie, as you listen to the album, ask yourself, does this help me love Jesus? It's okay to be the exception to the world. It's okay to not know what a TV series is about. It's okay to not have gone seen a movie. It's okay to not be a fan of an artist. Because your hope is different. Christian liberty is only liberty when you're mature enough to walk in liberty. Until you're mature enough, it's bondage. 
The second question, side of Sunday morning, what centers my life on Christ? Simple question, what centers my life on Christ? If you're a Sunday-only person, or what the statistics say, a 1.7 times a month person, number one, please don't be a 1.7 times a month person. Come every week, we love you. This is fun, right? But number two, uh, it's Sunday all that reminds you of your hope. A simple way, if you're not in our Bible before phones reading plan, just opt in and read with us. We're going to keep it going because so many people are growing and enjoying it. It's bringing our church together in new ways, creating easy conversation. If you're not doing it, hop in. Easy way to center your life on hope every day. You got a 15-minute car ride to work or to the gym? Instead of flipping on that normal podcast or listening to the sports, people talk about sports betting 24-7. Blowing my mind, like, be quiet. I don't care about the spread. Turn on, turn on worship music. We make great music here at our church. I don't know if you've ever heard it if you've been here on Sundays. We make amazing music that will point your heart and your mind back to Jesus. Listen to it. Find simple ways just to remind yourself of hope every day and watch what God does with that. Church family, we love you. And we just want you to know that hope is always present, even in the darkest moments of despair. You're not alone to walk through that. Number one, you have your church family. But number two, and the most important, you have God who will never leave you nor forsake you. God, we thank you. We love you, and we know that you're good, we know that you're mighty, we know that you're loving, we know that you're caring, God. We know that you move mountains for us, God. We know that you make your bed in hell with us when we go there, God. We know that you, oh, God, you have our names written on the palm of your hand, God. You collect our tears in your bottle, God. You love us. God, you made the worst deal in history. You made a covenant that you have to do all the work but we say thank you. So God, may that be our hope. May that be our peace in moments of despair. May we remember your goodness, your character, and your promises. And would that lead us until you call us home or until you crack that sky? God, we love you, and we eagerly wait for your return. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray all this in your powerful name. Amen.